Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amiga. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, October 30th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Kishore Hari is off this week to run the Bay Area Science Festival, but I am joined by a very special guest, Stevie Lepp, who is the host of a podcast called Reckonings. Last year, we collaborated with them on an episode, and this year, we're doing the same. And I think this episode in particular, you're really going to enjoy. So this episode, we are in collaboration with Reckonings, as I've mentioned. And so the format of the show is a little bit different. You're primarily going to hear the story of Jerry Taylor, Jerome Cogburn Taylor, who is now an American environmental activist and policy analyst. But he is perhaps most well known for the fact that he was a former climate change skeptic who came around to embrace policies to address climate change after researching the scientific consensus. I certainly don't argue that climate change isn't real. It is real. We know that the planet is warming. You know, industrial emissions have a lot to do with it. But there's a lot of uncertainties here. According to the IPCC, warming can be anywhere between 1.5 degrees Celsius to 4.5 degrees Celsius if we double pre-industrial levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And it turns out while the models are showing that the warming will be in the median to high side of that spread, the data that we've seen suggests it'll be on the low side. So I'm not arguing that the, you know, the scientific consensus is necessarily wrong. What I am saying is that there's a lot of good reasons to think that warming will be on the very low side of the most likely outcomes projected by the IPCC. And if that's the case, then it's probably going to be a relative non-event. So that was the old elevator pitch. Stevie Lepp, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to have you back on the show, especially with this particular story that I find especially fascinating. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you found Jerry. Yeah, so I found Jerry. I'm always on the lookout for people who are changing their hearts and minds about all kinds of things. And I must have been looking for someone who had had some kind of transformation around climate change. And found him through an article on The Intercept and discovered that he is, to my knowledge, the only paid professional climate skeptic who has ever flipped. 
there have been many, you know, there have been many skeptics and probably, you know, a few, let's say deniers who have flipped, uh, members of Congress and scientists, but no one who was actually paid to, you know, be a spokesperson for climate skepticism. What an amazing individual for your show, Reckonings, you know, in which you talk about people who have these major transformations. And it's really exciting for us because often on this show, we talk about climate change. We also talk about how to bring science to society. We talk about how do we get people who are entrenched in a belief to look at the data in an objective way and come to a different conclusion, perhaps. That's really, really hard. And so I was really excited to have you bring his story to us so that we can get a little bit more insight into how an individual does successfully change his or her mind, uh, especially when they have a lot of motivation not to. An individual who's getting paid to be a climate skeptic is certainly not particularly motivated mm-hmm. uh, to you know, change his tune. So I should also say that originally when we had first had a conversation about this collaboration, it was going to be part of a three-episode climate series here in Inquiring Minds that we were running for October. But because of the hurricanes and because of the wildfires in California, <laughs> both of our previous guests had to reschedule. So climate change has affected inquiring mind uh-huh. schedule. So you're still you're still getting it in some way in October. The uh, climate series is still coming to you, folks. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a little bit in one too, way or uh, another direct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the climate change is real uh, here in <laughs> Northern California, um, and we'll talk about it when the fires. Uh, I mean, they're now contained, but uh, we still have some rebuilding to do. But once everybody's back in action, we actually have some pretty uh, exciting climate scientists to talk to. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Jerry's story. This episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. What if hiring could be easier? More streamlined, less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com minds. That's ZipRecruiter.com minds. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Minds. I'm not entirely sure what show it was, or I'm not even positive it was that if I remember the network, it might have been CNN, it might have been CNBC, MSNBC, I don't recall. But anyway, I was in a debate with Joe Rum. he's a scientist, and we had a debate uh, about climate change, and I argued on screen 
that, uh, well, James Hansen testified in front of the United States Senate in the late 80s about climate change. It set off the entire political explosions that then followed. And uh, what uh, Dr. Hansen argued is that if we continued along business as usual and we didn't do anything to address emissions, then we would see a tremendous amount of warming in the future. And he actually offered temperature projections to back that up. Well, it's been more than a decade since uh, uh, Dr. Hansen testified in front of the Senate. We can go back now and see how well those predictions have held up. And what do you know? We've seen far less warming than uh, James Hansen uh, argued that we should have seen by now. In fact, we've only seen about a quarter of it. And that suggested to me that the climate is simply not as sensitive to greenhouse gas emissions from industrial sources as we thought. That doesn't mean that climate change is happening necessarily, but it does mean that the models are running really hot. And and there's a lot of uh, uh, that a lot of this debate in climate science is between what theory tells us should be happening based on rather dodgy climate models versus what we're actually seeing on the ground. We're just not seeing the kind of warming we should have been seeing by now. We go back to the green room and Joe said, uh, let me ask you a question. Did you actually read James Hansen's testimony you just got done talking about? And I said, well, I mean, some time ago. It's been more than a decade since he gave it, but uh, I didn't read right before I came on the air. Uh, and he says, so what was all this based on? And I said, well, it was based on some uh, uh, writings from climate skeptics that I've been working with. Uh, and he says, all right, do me a favor. He says, I'm not sure. I'm sure you won't do it. He said, because I imagine you're the total hack that I think you are. But if you're not... He said, go back to your office and read that testimony again. Uh, and if you bother to do this, Jerry, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that he didn't, just give, he didn't just give one temperature projection. He gave three temperature projections based on different emissions profiles. Yes, he did offer a scenario A, which he called business as usual, which, strictly speaking, uh, you reflected reasonably accurately. But he also gave B and C scenarios, which reflected different emissions, assuming, you know, different kinds of uh, uh, whether we have public policy action or not. One of them had an emissions profile, which is virtually, you know, which is pretty close to what we've actually seen from that point uh, in time when he gave that testimony to the present. And if you look at the temperature projection he gave for that scenario, it's pretty much spot on. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. That's pretty much what we've seen. He says, so the bottom line is, you're arguing that the models run hot and that the amount of warming we've seen proves it. And the reality is that's not at all what that underlying testimony suggests. He said, or don't bother to look at it. Just be a, you know, be a hack. By God, I was going to go and reread Jansen's testimony and prove him wrong, right? And so I went back to my office and took Joe up on the challenge and didn't take long to dig up the testimony and look it over again. And miracle dictu, he was right. I figured I must have been missing something because, uh, after all, I work with scientists who have very strong opinions to the contrary. So I went and talked to a climate skeptic, uh, a scientist, credentialed scientist, who publishes in the peer-reviewed literature upon occasion, who had uh, offered this narrative on multiple occasions in the past. And I, I told him what happened, and I said, well, look, I just finished reading uh, Hansen's testimony, and uh, it seems to me like uh, Joe's right. So what am I missing here? You know, what am I overlooking uh, in, this, in this debate? And it turns out I wasn't overlooking anything. Uh, for 20 minutes, the scientist in question kind of hemmed and hawed and spun and was kind of dodging all of this and finally said, look, I don't represent James Hansen. Let him get an attorney and explain or let him go on TV and explain it. My job is to, you know, is to put a highlight, uh, is to put a bright spotlight on the fact 
that he's predicted a lot more warming than we've seen. That's what I've done. And that's what's happened. And I'm not sure why we're having this conversation. So that put me back on my heels. I mean, my gosh, I'm now dealing with somebody who I had been trusting uh, for some time now who was uh, purposefully uh, and consciously misrepresenting the debate. And it shook me a lot. I I told him it seems to me he was dodging and misrepresenting the debate for uh, rhetorical, uh, uh, for short-term rhetorical gain. And I didn't like being put in a spot of going out on national television and making an argument that he knows darn well that he fed me, which was dodgy and misleading. So from that point forward, I began to do the due diligence with the narratives from the scientific community I was relying on before I would carry them forward into debate. And I found that far more often than not, the same story would play itself out over and over and over again. Either the studies were misrepresentative or they were cherry picking data or they allege positions or arguments held by climate scientists that they were arguing against that really weren't held by those climate scientists, Um, or they were just not very good. They weren't in peer-reviewed journals. They were, uh, to the extent to which they got any attention from uh, climate mainstreamers, the studies would be shot to pieces. I was certainly aware that I was becoming less and less comfortable with my position, but I thought that while the climate skeptics may be overstating their case, misrepresenting a lot of the argument, still by and large they have a viable, they have a plausible narrative. But I was on, since I didn't trust any of that conversation anymore, and I certainly didn't want to be a party to, uh, uh, well, if, if you can't trust your source, you shouldn't be using your sources. So I was much more comfortable with the economics conversation. The economics conversation revolves around the argument that addressing climate change is simply too costly for our economy to bear. And Jerry was more comfortable with that argument until he came across an article by economist Jonathan Adler. He argued that even if the climate skeptics are right, even if everything they say is correct, even if everything that the A-list climate scientists who testify uh, for Republicans in front of the Congress about why we shouldn't act to do anything about climate, he said, even if they're all right, they're still, that's not a good argument against climate action. He said, look, libertarians generally believe that government is here to protect private property from being damaged by people who might trespass against it. And if party A, you know, the people who make greenhouse gas emissions, are destroying the property or the persons of party B, you know, victims, then just because A gains more than B loses doesn't mean it's A-OK in the libertarian playbook. Libertarians are not utilitarians. They believe that the government's job is to protect property rights with no proviso that says, unless you make a whole lot of money by screwing with them. And I had never thought of it that way. Okay, so let's say you own a small vineyard on a rolling hilltop. Now, because of climate change, your growing season is getting shorter and hotter. This year, your grapes just dried out on the vines, and you can't sell wine from dry grapes. The point Jonathan Adler is making is that just because fossil fuel companies are making more money emitting greenhouse gases 
then you're losing because of how those emissions are damaging your vineyard doesn't make it okay that those emissions are damaging your vineyard. In other words, your property rights are being violated. And property rights are really important to libertarians like Jerry. So is addressing climate change too costly for our economy to bear? Well, some people like you in this case are already paying for it in the form of violated property rights. And libertarians believe that government should protect property rights, which means government should take climate action. I got to the point where I could not find a credentialed economist in academia who published in the peer-reviewed literature who would argue against climate action. Not a, not a single one. I was there to uh, oversee Cato's uh, climate and uh, energy and environmental policy operations, and one of the biggest issues in my bailiwick is climate policy, and I felt uncomfortable talking about it because I could not confidently make the case against climate action, uh, but I didn't think there was any space for any other position at Cato, so I just found other things to spend my time on. How, how long was that period of time? Oh, that probably lasted, uh, you know, I don't know, for exactly maybe three or four or five years, something like that. Three, four or five years? Yeah. That's a long period of time to be running Cato's energy and climate policy operation without feeling comfortable talking about energy and climate policy, don't you think? Well, I felt comfortable about talking about other matters back then, so, uh, so I, I found ways to keep myself busy. He uh, was introduced to me via email by Cliff Asnes, who is a hedge fund manager in New York. Uh, Cliff is a friend of mine and a uh, donor to the Cato Institute. And um, Cliff uh, shot me an email and said, hey, look, uh, my former boss at Goldman, Bob Litterman, uh, asked if uh, I might be able to provide an introduction. Bob's still a good friend. He says, you know, uh, Bob's kind of a soft libertarian who I agree on most things, but uh, uh, he is a climate activist. He says, you know, I'm kind of with you. I'm not. Uh, but still, uh, he asked if uh, I might introduce him to somebody at the Cato Institute so he might have a conversation. I encourage you to get together. He's a great guy. And uh, even if, you know, you disagree with Bob, he's somebody who's very smart and uh, interesting to talk to. So I said, fine. Happy to, uh, happy to meet him. So Bob comes in to see me, and uh, in the room with me was Peter Van Dorn, who's the editor of Regulation Magazine and a friend of mine. Uh, and Peter had shared my discomfort with, uh, with our climate position. And uh, so Bob came in, and uh, he, said, he introduced himself and explained his background. And it turns out uh, that Bob Litterman uh, was a partner at Goldman Sachs. Uh, but most notably, he was one of the first, in fact, I think he was the first director of a quant operation on Wall Street. And within the academic community, he's known as one of the top risk, uh, uh, risk management uh, intellectuals in the world. And uh, so he said, look, Jerry, um, I deal with risks at Goldman that are much like climate change every single day. We have a wide distribution of possible outcomes given various investment scenarios. And I can't tell you exactly what the chances are for each of those little scenarios to come to pass. But I do know that there is a distribution of risk. And when we have a distribution of various outcomes, many of them quite costly and, and, and dangerous for our clients, we don't just ignore them. We don't. We have to price those risks. 
And after we price those risks, maybe we'll hedge, maybe we won't. He said, but we can't ignore them. And he says, where I think a lot of this conversation and climate is going wrong is that you, the Cato Institute, and you know, mainstream climate activists are in a hot war about the most likely outcome from climate change. And your folks say it'll be on the lower end of the possible distribution of outcomes, and they argue it'll likely be the median or high end. And he says, you know, and I don't know, and maybe you're right, uh, what's the, you know, what'll come to pass? I don't know. He said, but if you price the risks associated with various outcomes, the arguments against climate action just fall apart. They just fall apart. And that's particularly true when you, when you recognize the fact that climate change is a non-diversifiable risk. In other words, there's nothing I can invest in that'll pay off if climate change happens. And he says, now, Jerry, in markets, when people are investing their own money and they confront non-diversifiable risks in the marketplace, how much do they pay to avoid those risks? He says, the, the, the reality is they pay a ton to avoid risks like that. The case for action is... is absolutely undeniable. So, uh, after about uh, uh, an hour and a half or two hours of talking this through with Bob, he walked out of my office and I looked to Peter and I said, it just seems to me that our position got shredded to pieces here. Well, actually, it's kind of invigorating. I'm the kind of person who, when he runs into an interesting or clever or intriguing or uh, counterintuitive idea, wants to talk about it. Even climate skeptics will go back and say, look, there's a lot we don't know about climate science. You know, it could be a little, it could be a lot. I mean, if you listen to Scott Pruitt at the EPA, he does that, right? This is, this. so uncertainty is an argument used by skeptics. But the reality is, is that if you're in the risk management business, like Bob was at Goldman, like we are as a society with climate change, uncertainty is the reason that you hedge against risk. Uncertainty is why you want to manage risk. The very fact of uncertainty is what demands the policy response. And so that's how I responded to the conversation with Bob. I was pretty excited. Imagine yourself if you're at a uh, holiday party with uh, the Mother Jones staff and you say, you know, I think gun control is kind of silly. I think the NRA's got a point when they argue that we need to be looser with gun regulation. I think that's the best way to do a public safety. Could you imagine what that would do at your holiday party? Uh, well, when you're amongst conservatives or libertarians and you say, you know, I think that, you know, Al Gore was more right than wrong and climate change is a real thing and it's not a conspiracy cooked up by uh, leftists who want to destroy capitalism. And I honestly think that you know, we need to act. And if that means using regulations or taxes or, you know, some other uh, uh, means to get fossil fuels out of this economy on a pretty short order, we got to do it. Well, you know, that's a, a, a pretty strong cup of tea for a lot of my old friends to drink. The fact is, is that uh, I became increasingly uncomfortable with uh, my position at the Cato Institute. And so by the spring of 2014, I decided that it was time to liberate myself from the constraints of uh, institutional orthodoxy and, uh, and to re-engage with uh, libertarian-friendly rhetoric, not just on climate, but on a whole host of issues.
Jerry Taylor is the only paid climate skeptic who has ever flipped. So why did he knowingly challenge his views on climate change? Why was he receptive to what Jim Hansen and Jonathan Adler and Bob Litterman had to say? Most people who do what I do for a living, whether on the left or the right, are not in the business of wrestling with the strongest arguments and strongest advocates for the other side. They're in the business of being the best spokesman for their cause within their choir. And I wanted to do something beyond that. And so because I had greater aspirations for myself, it required me to wrestle with the best arguments for the other side. Most skeptics don't know what the best arguments from the other side are. They don't know what the strongest literature is. They don't know what the strongest data and evidence is, because it, it's irrelevant to them. If you're, all you're doing is talking to uh, people who watch Fox News or read the Wall Street Journal editorial page or look at National Review, it's pretty certain that your crowd is not up on this stuff, as long as you're telling conservatives and Republicans what they want to hear, and you say it with brio and with a spirit de corps uh, and with a, a healthy dose of snarling about, you know, Susie Cream Cheese and Tree Huggers, you're probably just fine. You'll be on Tucker Carlson's show. You'll, you'll, do, you'll get your job done. But I didn't want to embarrass myself, and I did not want to uh, be uh, diced and sliced uh, uh, on TV. Now, there are a lot of people... Uh, they don't mind being humiliated on public television by speaking absolute gibberish. They don't care because they are playing their role in the script they're given on that show to be the spokesman for the right-wing cause. And they don't care if, you know, they don't sound all that smart to smart people because they don't care about that audience. They only care about the, the choir audience. I also was very, very aware of the fact that there were conservatives uh, who trusted me to give them solid information. So if I got a phone call from John Stossel at Fox, or if I got a ring from George Will when he was writing for the Washington Post, and they wanted to talk about a policy issue in my area, I had a responsibility to give them as bulletproof uh, an argument and as solid a uh, set of data as I possibly could, because they're tr relying on me. And if I don't do that, and then they go on the air, or they go in print, and they offer garbage, uh, and they get shredded, then they'll look at that and say, well, how the hell did that happen? Why was I running? How did this garbage get into my column? Oh, it's that guy that I listened to. Which is exactly what happened to Jerry that sparked his transformation in the first place. He'd parroted a bunk scientific narrative on national television and then felt betrayed by the scientist who had fed it to him. So in a way, it was Jerry's commitment to being a successful climate skeptic that made him open to change. It was precisely because he wanted to persuade people beyond his choir and be a reliable source for conservative pundits that he reread James Hansen's testimony and confronted that climate scientist when it looked right and was a, shall we say, inquiring mind doing the due diligence that led him to convincing counter-arguments. And what made him reckon not just with his views on climate change, but with his relationship with his views more broadly. 
Most people aren't in the business of looking skeptically at things that they already agree with or want to agree with as they are if they're looking at things they don't agree with or that they don't want to agree with. That's just motivated cognition. My engines of motivated cognition were on full tilt when I was at the Cato Institute. It turns out if you're really smart, you got a high IQ, you're really well read, you can talk yourself into believing a whole lot of crazy. But if you're not so motivated uh, to, you know, hold a tribal line, then with those engines cut off a little bit, things can become very different. I was having a... Uh, uh, Lunch with a friend of mine, uh, a, a, a major climate activist, uh, John Pascatondo, used to be the president of Greenpeace. And I got to know John when I was on the other side of this debate because I debated him on TV a lot, too. But uh, turns out John's a really nice guy. He didn't live too far from me. He liked to bass fish on the Potomac, so we kind of became friends. And uh, I was chatting with him about the Niskanen Center. I told him I was going to leave the Cato Institute. I was going to start the Niskanen Center. Uh, and I told him what issues we'd deal with, but climate wasn't one of them. And he said, Jerry, you really should deal with climate. I mean, you've got a whole lot of bad karma and not a whole lot of time to do something about it. And he said, man, life's short. You know, life's short. Look, you're the best opponent I ever had in this conversation, which means that you have a lot of uh, making up to do. He said, look, do what you want to do, but I think you'd be a happier person. Uh, if you could uh, engage on the issue that you probably are better equipped to engage on than any of the other issues uh, that you want to uh, uh, invest in at the Niskanen Center. The reality is, is that I was in a position that few people were and that I understood exactly why people gravitate towards climate skepticism on the right. I know climate skeptics really well. I know libertarians pretty well. I know conservative Republicans very well. I have a good relationship with a lot of them. And I can sit there with credibility and say, look, I used to believe exactly what you believe. Hell, I wrote your talking points. I know where this comes from. And for 20 odd years, I was there. So I understand exactly. But let me tell you why I'm not there anymore. I have a unique opportunity to talk to conservatives and right of center uh, uh, political audiences in a way that most people don't. There are plenty of climate skeptics out there. I was, uh, because of my perch at the Cato Institute, I was one of the more influential of the bunch. Uh, I've been on TV and radio and op-ed pages and Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and National Review more times than I can remember. I wish earlier in my career I had done the due diligence with the arguments that I was trafficking in uh, uh, far earlier than I began to undertake that mission. I do regret that. That's something that I feel I have a lot to, I have a lot to make up for. So I walked out of that lunch thinking he's right. The same day he left the Cato Institute, Jerry started the Niskanen Center, a libertarian think tank that promotes market-based solutions to climate change, primarily through a carbon tax. And in looking to persuade climate skeptics, the Niskanen Center uses what worked for Jerry. Our aim is to talk to people who don't agree with us and to make the case for why they ought to entertain changing their minds and agreeing with us. 
because I think people can be persuaded by good arguments. But you have to understand that you, you have to frame it in ways that they can appreciate. You have to, you have to make the case with more moral and value arguments that speak to them. You will waste your time talking about equity issues to a libertarian who does not care, but they care about other things, so you make the case in a different fashion. And it turns out that uh, that is a, a more invigorating and intellectually challenging life than uh, simply one-offing an op-ed for uh, uh, National Review every couple of weeks or you know, putting in your you know, once or twice a week appearance at Fox News just to, you know, uh, to shout with the howler monkeys about how the communists are coming to take your children. It is tremendously liberating to be in a position to argue uh, uh, in the, uh, what you want and to take positions that you're totally comfortable with without having to answer to uh, an administration or a management that uh, you don't agree with. One of the most useful witticisms that I've come across was from C.K. Chesterton who cautioned against uh, the person of the one book, the, the, the person who might read Atlas Shrugged or, you know, name a book that is all of the political rage in certain communities, and then they become militant on this. And, and so Chesterton argued against the person who reads the one book uh, because they will invariably find themselves in a well-lit prison cell, uh, in a well-lit intellectual prison cell that they can't escape from. and. When we find ourselves uh, using our engines of motivated cognition to stay within the tribe and to constantly police ourselves against the possibility of being tempted by heretical thoughts uh, and uh, uncomfortable observations about reality, what we're really doing is arming our inner policemen to keep watch on this penitentiary that we voluntarily locked ourselves into. And one of the reasons why it's been an incredibly uh, uh, invigorating thing for me to be at the Niskanen Center and to have the people around me that I have around me is that it's an incredibly invigorating thing to not be in a penitentiary anymore, to not be in an ideological penitentiary or some sort of tribal penitentiary. And I fear that too many people, not just in climate skepticism and not just on the right, but on the left as well, because they are they are captured by these uh, dogmatic and ideological uh, loyalties that they are, in a sense, locking themselves in a, in, in a rather exhausting jail cell. And they would be far better to let these things go and to think with open minds. What is unique about Jerry's story to me is that Jerry Taylor really is this rare bird whose mind was changed by information because of motivated cognition, because people can effectively, you know, basically find whatever information they want to support whatever it is that they believe. You know, it is rarely the case that people's minds are changed by information. And it is really a testament, I would say, to how ruthless of a critical thinker 
uh, or shall we say inquiring mind, uh, Jerry Taylor is. Um, and actually, I just I just want to share a little, you know, when I asked him if the Niskanen Center calls itself a libertarian think tank or how they kind how they kind of accommodate the nuance that they bring to libertarianism, he gave me this amazing spiel, you know, that some people there call themselves neo-libertarians, and some people are liberal-tarians, and some people are neoliberals and <laughs> ordo-liberals, and clearly they are just a, a, a refreshingly, critically thinking bunch who are, you know, not, like he says, not people of one book, but are really thinking through things on a case-by-case -case or policy-by-policy -policy basis. And uh, yeah, I, I almost called it, I, I almost was going to title the piece, The Liberated Libertarian. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, he, I, I mean, I, I talk to people who change all the time, and it really is this rare and unique and wonderful and, you know, fits with Inquiring Minds very well story that he was moved by, by solid arguments, by, by, by solid evidence and information. Yeah, I think for me, one of the most interesting parts of the interview is when he talks about the process of actually making this, coming to this realization, where, you know, he, he starts to see how other individuals who are climate skeptics are cherry picking data, are quoting studies that are not really well done, or are reports. And, you know, that, I think it takes a real sort of shift in mind to recognize those kinds of tricks and tools. Because for so many people, that is just the way that they do research. And they, it's a hard, it's hard for them to sort of recognize that they are cherry picking data. <laughs> you know, it's like they're so compelled by that one piece of evidence, that they just keep coming back to it and saying, No, but look at this piece of evidence, look at this data point. Um, and here he is saying, Look, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been quoting comes from shoddy research. And when you look at this consensus, uh, that, you know, things sort of come out in the other way. The other thing that really fascinated me was the fact that he was making a very economic argument. And uh, that to me was really nuanced, too. I think a lot of people, as I imagine, when they come to, you know, a sort of fanaticism about a particular point of view, do it from a less kind of mathematical or, or rational place. Uh, so I liked the fact that when he sort of started to realize that economically, this is really going to have a huge impact. And, you know, as you mentioned in your narr narration, this is something that is already impacting all of us <laughs> uh, in ways that aren't always obvious. That that to me, that was a, a an interesting discovery from his perspective, because it's subtle. It's not something that's, you know, like wildfires in California that are the worst they've been since recorded history. That seems obvious, you know, and you see these like large catastrophic events, you know, it's easy to say, oh, okay, maybe there's something to it. Even, even if those events actually might not be directly related to climate change, it's a lot harder to sort of see the forest for the trees, which is kind of what he's doing with the economic analysis, where he's sort of seeing the slow shift, the slow impact that is much harder to recognize. And that that was one of the most compelling parts for him uh, of why he changed his mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that that was why that moved him. Because to Jonathan Adler's point, you know, even it, it, it even if 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 what the skeptics are saying are right, that that still doesn't defeat the case, there is still a case for climate action. Um, and 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 Catherine Hayhoe, 
uh, talks about this too. We oftentimes get really hung up about the science. Actually, J- Jerry talks about this too, but um, or I think he's quoting Bob Litterman that you know we're in this quote unquote hot war about the most likely outcome. But you know we that's almost a detour in a way, or that that almost kind of keeps us mired in this you know back and forth tug of war because all you really need once is 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 a distribution of risk, and once you see that there is risk, then there is a case for action, and you can just leave the mess, you know, the hot war of what is the most likely outcome, or you know the the getting mired in the science. You can kind of step away from that and start talking about okay, what do we do about this? Because we actually do need to do something about this anyway. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a lot of times when I do talk to individuals who are skeptical of the impact that, you know, climate change is going to have on our future, you know, the first thing that they say is like, look, you know, if it's if the IPCC report is true, if if there's like, you know, if these scientists who recently came out and said it's, oh, it's going to be on the low end of our predictions, then who cares? You know, it's not going to have an economical impact. And, you know, Jerry came to a very different conclusion. And so, you know, I think that that's that's, a, you know, in some ways a, a harder place to get to than simply like, OK, I acknowledge the fact that, you know, there seem to be too many environmental things that are going on at the time for this just to be coincidence. Mm-hmm. One um, one lingering question for me is, you know, I would love to know if there are people that Jerry kind of uh, brought along with him on his journey, you know, pe- people who he first convinced of climate skepticism, and then convinced of the case for climate action. Yeah, like, as he talked about, you know, he's now he's the guy, he's the guy at the party that, you know, has like bad body odor, or you know, nobody <laughs> wants to talk to him, because, you know, he's he's now. And so it would be really interesting to sort of get a survey of, uh, you know, the, the individuals who did follow him, who were influenced by him when he was expressing skepticism on climate change. And, uh, you know, what do they think now? And yeah. uh, do they disown him uh, as a sellout, you know, or um, do well, they? Actually, on that, so there is, there's so much more to his story, obviously, that, that could not be fit into the piece. But one one kind of juicy nugget that didn't make it is his brother, actually, he kind of he kind of parlayed his brother into a role at the Heartland Institute and has and, and his brother has has kind of made kind of taken the Heartland Institute to, to kind of the this this prominent place. I think it is kind of I think it is like the most kind of like the leading think tank of climate skepticism. And he recommended his brother for the role that his brother is now in. And his brother is deep in that. And so Jerry and his, t- and his brother just can't actually talk about climate change to each wow. other. I mean, they have a relationship and they, you know, and they, they see each other and they've just kind of agreed to not talk about it. But they are very much on, you know, very different sides in a very, very public way. I mean, for me, the, the broader implication of this story and and one that mm-hmm. i think you know both the inquiring minds and the reckonings audiences can really appreciate is that you know along with tackling climate denial and 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 politically motivated skepticism at the level of of the views in and of themselves you know at the level of whether it's a scientific scientific evidence or the economic arguments 
um, we really need to be tackling at the level of our relationship with our views, you know, and you, you, you could say like inoculating ourselves with, you know, with genuine skepticism and with and with critical thinking, which is portable beyond the realm of climate change and increasingly essential in our uh, post-truth moment. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Jerry was the perfect setup for having a kind of reckoning because he was in the business of critical thinking. You know, he was in the business of making an argument, in the business of debating uh, something that was out there. So part of his job was to continue to collect evidence and research. And and the fact that he started to see that the bulk of the evidence was not on his side anymore, you know, is a testament of his thoroughness. I think for most of us, we don't often have that many opportunities to continue to collect evidence once we've formed an opinion. Yeah. I mean, usually, you know, when we're not sure about something, we go and we research it. And then once we are satisfied with the research and we come to an opinion, we don't revisit it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that's one of the the, the lessons maybe here is that uh, when there is, a, when you do hold a strong opinion that does seem to continue to remain controversial, uh, maybe we do need to do periodic checks uh, to make mm-hmm. sure that our opinion still aligns with the available evidence. Yeah, that's a great little call to action. All right, everyone. Let's all take a something, you know, something we believe that uh is is uh challenged out there and uh maybe do a little due diligence of our own. Well, Stevie, thank you so much for bringing this story to inquiring minds. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own reckoning, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and this episode was also co-produced by Stevie Lepp. In cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Reckonings would love to thank Helena de Groot, Vika Aronson, Phil Groman, and Patricia Adler for their editorial guidance, Luisa Tavlas for coordinating our conversation with Jerry, and of course to Jerry Taylor himself for having the courage to release himself from his tribal penitentiary and live his values. Next up on Reckonings, we'll hear from someone who helped uh, incite those howler monkeys to howl, uh, the young man who was the protege of the late Fox News chairman, Roger Ailes. We're your hosts for this week. I'm Andrevis Gondes. You can find me on Twitter at Andrevis. I'm Stevie Lepp. You can find Reckonings on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, on Facebook at facebook.com slash reckonings and at reckonings.show. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. 
Amica. Empathy is our best policy.